Well, again, we come to a wonderful privilege to be able to open up the Word of God and to be able to dig into it, to find some of the practical and exciting truths that can apply to our lives so that we can live more fully to His glory. And this morning we have before us a rather mysterious subject, and yet one that is very, very important. It is the subject of faith. The Word of God tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God. And this morning we are going to understand a little bit better what happens when our faith grows weak. From time to time, we have physical examinations. We've all been there. When we have to go to the doctor and they determine our physical strength and our cardiovascular endurance. And most of us realize that once we leave our high school and college age years, our physical strength gradually begins to wane if we're not careful. Especially in the United States, it is estimated that most people over the age of 25 cannot do 20 push-ups. It is estimated that by 30, most people are unable to run even a few hundred yards. Don't worry, I'm not going to preach to you about physical fitness this morning. But I do want you to see a bit of a parallel. It's interesting also, by the way, that there is a direct correlation between affluence and obesity, now considered to be one of the greatest health risks in America, especially for our children, interestingly enough. However, I believe that our children are going to have the strongest thumbs in the history of the world because of video machines. Well, as we grow older and as our bodies begin to expand, and we all know what that's like, myself included, our muscles begin to grow weaker and we become less and less able to do many of the things that we wish we could do. Well, friends, I fear that the same is true in the spiritual realm. In our culture of affluence and entertainment and religious freedom, in a culture where we have a pill for, for virtually every ailment, Christians kind of get to a point where we don't need to exercise our faith. We don't really need to trust God for many things because we have everything we really need. And so, as a result, our worship begins to become mechanical. We gradually forget the omnipresence and the omniscience and the sovereignty of God. Little by little, we begin to embrace more fully the things of the world rather than setting our affections on things above. And as a result, the muscles of our faith gradually begin to atrophy until all of our spiritual strength has virtually disappeared. And I might ask you as we begin this morning, when was the last time you paused to examine the strength of your faith? When was the last time you had a spiritual checkup with respect to your faith? When was the last time you got on the treadmill of trusting God to see how long you would last before giving up and exhaustion? Well, today we're going to discover what happens when faith grows weak and what to do about it 
And we find ourselves as we continue to go verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, and I would invite you to turn there. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 21 this morning. A very fascinating text, a very practical text. While you're turning there, may I remind you that Jesus has just revealed his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He has encouraged Peter, James and John because they were quite discouraged, understanding that the Lord was going to Jerusalem to be murdered, to to be a sacrifice for sins. And so the Lord has encouraged them on the Mount and the rest of the disciples have remained down below encountering a test of their faith, which, as we will see, is a vivid picture of what it means to live by faith when Jesus isn't around, something that the the disciples had to learn to do, to learn to trust him even when he wasn't there physically. Now, sadly, what we're going to see is they failed the test, and now Jesus is about to teach them and all of us a very crucial lesson regarding the danger of weak faith and how to strengthen it. So beginning in verse 14 of Matthew 17, we read, And when they came to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic, and he is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, Oh, unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, for truly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there and it shall move and nothing shall be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. To help us grasp these important truths, I have divided this text into three categories. We must understand, first of all, the scene of despair. We will understand the parallels of this scene in the world in which we live. Secondly, we must understand the tragedy of doubt. And thirdly, the triumph of faith. First of all, as we look at the scene of despair... We see in verses 14 and 16 how our senses are suddenly shocked back into reality. What a stark contrast from the glorious scene on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now suddenly we're brought low into a descent into the valley of despair, if you will. We've brought we've been brought from from heaven down to earth. We're suddenly confronted with the reality of life in a fallen world. We've been taken from glory and now placed into sadness. By the way, sometimes I personally feel this on Monday mornings, having had several days in the vault of study, 
communing with the Lord and then to come to you and to fellowship with you and to open up the word of God to you and to somehow be exalted to the heights of heavenly glory as we fellowship and we worship. And then all of a sudden reality sets in on Monday morning. You almost hate to turn on the news because suddenly you're brought down once again to life in a fallen world. And this is what is depicted here in this scene. Now, imagine for a moment the intense grief of this father. If I can somehow in the feebleness of language take you there. Imagine what it would be like to be a parent and you try to call to your child. And your child is trying to call to you, trying to speak to you and asking you for help that you could not give. Imagine what it would be like with a child such as this, as if this child is calling to you from across a great abyss, a great chasm, and that you're separated from him in a way that you cannot understand, a way that you cannot reach. Imagine what it would be like to have a child that is flailing about, beating the air in in a delirious frenzy from time to time under the influence of a demonic spirit. And in this case, the child is even unable to speak, according to Mark's gospel in Mark 9:17, where we read that he is possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And apparently, according to Mark's gospel, he is also deaf. Imagine if this were your child. Imagine sensing what Jesus later verified, that your son's problem was demonic. And according to Luke 9:39, this young man was even dangerous due to his excessive violence and, and self-mutilation. There the father claimed that whenever the spirit seizes him, he suddenly screams and it, referring to the spirit, throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And as it mauls him, it scarcely leaves him. Friends, imagine the horror of peering into your son's eyes and seeing some some distant gaze. Imagine that, that there's no speech. There's no communication. There's only the incessant drool flowing off of a hanging lip and the babblings of an animal. Now, with the intelligence of a mongrel and at times with superhuman strength, there's no way to even restrain your child when he falls into the fire and sometimes falls into the water. My friends, imagine what it would be like to somehow look upon your child's body and you see that it is scarred with burns. To know that the child has even become at some level desensitized to pain. That your son is is ostracized from society, that he is oblivious to truth, that somehow he is dead to anything spiritual, and that he just wanders around. Imagine what it would be like to watch your child stumble through life like a madman. My friends, what a graphic picture the Spirit of God has given us of our fallen world and the power of Satan. And the disfigurement and the destruction of sin. This is the scene of despair. We've descended from the Mount of Glory to the devil's world. And friends, the only hope is faith. The transforming, transcendent faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. 
And then when we have that faith to have an ongoing, persistent, powerful, persevering faith as we remain dedicated to him. And may I remind you again of the scene here in verse 14. And when they came to the multitude, a man came to him, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill. And he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. He's a lunatic. We get our word lunar from that. It means to be moonstruck. It means to have epilepsy or to have convulsions. And it is rooted in the concept of something being related to the moon. The ancients, you see, believed that things like this were caused by the moon in combination with evil spirits. In fact, according to Luke's gospel in 938, we even read that this is the father's only son. And he brings his only son to the disciples, knowing that. The disciples had cured other people like this. He brings them to them. But something is wrong with the disciples. Something has changed. They're unable to help. What is the problem? They still have the same Lord. They still have access to the same power. They still have the same commission. They were commissioned in Matthew 10, you will recall, to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. But something has happened. Has Satan's power suddenly grown stronger? Or has their faith grown weaker? Well, Jesus answers this in verses 17 and 18. He's now speaking to the disciples and the thrill-seeking Multitudes, as well as the wicked Pharisees and scribes that were hounding him every step of the way. Verses 17 and 18, we read, And Jesus answered and said, O unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Friends, here is the tragedy of doubt. How sad. A man is in deep spiritual need here. He's in need of spiritual help. So he turns to the disciples and he finds nothing. And I can't help but wonder, wonder how many times people come to the Christian church. And this same scenario is played out. They're in need of spiritual help. From those of us who claim to know and to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to be empowered by his spirit. And yet they get nothing. People in great spiritual need seeking help and they go away empty handed. Isn't it wonderful, however, that the Lord is always there to come to the rescue who seek him in humility and brokenness of heart. So the disciples are also frustrated. They're confused. So they come to Jesus privately And they say in verse 19, why could we not cast it out? And verse 20, he says to them, because of the littleness of your faith. The littleness of your faith. You see, they failed to be divinely empowered instruments of righteousness because there was something deficient in their faith. 
Oh, yes, they had saving faith, but friends, they lacked sanctifying faith. Remember, sanctification is that process whereby God accomplishes his will in and through us, through the power of the Holy Spirit. You might say that they had the power, but they weren't plugged into the power. Their faith was little. It was insufficient. They failed to completely trust God. You see, this was crucial because this was a seriously wicked demon in this boy. We're going to understand that more in a moment. Plus, the disciples now have been shaken by Jesus' words of suffering and and dying in Jerusalem. And this is producing doubt and discouragement in them. Maybe this isn't the Jesus that he was all cracked up to be. Maybe this isn't the Jesus that we really need. Maybe he doesn't have the power that we think he has. And so doubt begins to set in in a very subtle way. And friends, that will always happen when we redefine Jesus according to our agenda. You know, it's easy to be strong and to be courageous when Jesus is right down the road, right? But now he's talking about leaving. It's easy to be strong when everything is going well. But it's something altogether different when the money's run out and there's no proper diagnosis of the disease and there seemingly is no answers. Like Peter, they had become afraid. Remember when Peter was walking on the water and he took his eyes off of the object of his faith, the source of his power, and he begins to sink and he cries out to the Lord. And in Matthew 14, verse 31, We read that Jesus immediately stretches out his hand and takes hold of him and says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? You see, this is the lesson they must now learn to stop living by sight because Jesus is about to depart and learn to live by faith, learn to trust in the things that are unseen. Because Satan is the prince and the power of the world. He is a formidable foe. He is brilliantly deceptive. He has enormous power. And our human resources are incapable of doing battle with the devil. That's why we read in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 3 that we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Friends, unless we have faith, the type of faith That the Lord is talking about in this text, when we do battle with the enemy of our souls in this life, we do it like shooting a BB gun at a battleship. We need something much more powerful, divinely powerful weapons, which is, of course, faith in the word of God and in prayer. So Jesus now explains the kind of faith that is needed in verse 20. He says, truly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there and it shall move and nothing shall be impossible. Now, friends, please understand, mustard seed faith should not be equated with the analogy of the smallness of the seed. Many times people do this. They think, boy, all we need is just a teeny teeny bit of faith. That's not the idea here. I mean, the problem that they had is they had just a little bit of faith, but they didn't have enough faith. That's not the issue here. 
It's not the smallness of the faith that is in in view here, but rather the persistence and the enormous power of a mustard seed. A beautiful illustration of a faithful Christian. Now, please understand, Jesus has just taught them about living a life of self-denial, of being willing to lose their life in order to gain it, of committing themselves to following him and trusting after him, and even to the point of taking up a cross daily to follow him. Now, in light of that, think of the mustard seed. The mustard seed is one of the smallest of all seeds. It's even smaller when you dissect it from its husk. It is a little seed that is born in the air to its place of resting where eventually it will germinate. It is a seed that must be nourished by the sun. It is a seed that has to be watered by the nighttime dew. It is utterly helpless apart from divine intervention. Yet it grows to be the largest of all of the garden herbs, as high as a man on top of a horse, sometimes even as high as 15 feet. And its power is only unleashed when it denies itself completely and yields itself totally to the creator's process. You see, the mustard seed must bury itself completely in the soil. Then go through a process of disillusion and disintegration as the outer self is separated from the inner self. A picture of self-denial. As it jettisons its outer shroud, its inner germ is quickened, if you will. And then it patiently waits upon the perfect timing of God. This almost microscopic bundle of DNA gradually then begins to rise from death unto newness of life. And with astonishing power, it pushes its way up through the earth. It pushes its way past every obstacle in its path, moving through clods and stones. In fact, it has been known to lift large paving stones as much as an inch or two in a single night. This is the power and the persistence of mustard seed faith. It is said of the great man of God, George Mueller, that great 19th century Christian leader, that he prayed for five of his friends that were unsaved. And as the story goes He prayed for five years before the first one came to know Christ. He prayed for five more years and two more of these men came to Christ. And he prayed for his fifth friend until his death. And actually, as you read the story, you find out that it was a few months after his death that the last ones came to Christ George Mueller prayed for 50 years for five friends. What a great example of mustard seed faith. This is the kind of faith we're to have. A faith that never doubts in the goodness and the provision and the power of God. Mustard seed faith is a self-denying faith that focuses on God and his glory, not me and what I want. Mustard seed faith is patient faith. It is persistent faith which results in powerful faith and fruitful faith. 
And you see, the disciples' faith was weakened now by doubt. They were unable to deal with the, with, with the desperate and despairing situation of the Lord moving away from them and departing from them. So their faith is often like ours, that ebbs and flows with circumstances. Oh, when things are well, I have great faith. But when everything is bleak and I'm in the water and I'm surrounded by sharks, then my faith grows very, very weak. But friends, these are the scenarios that God, God brings our way to strengthen our faith and to prove himself powerful on our behalf. The disciples' faith was self-centered. It focused on their needs, not God and his glory. It was an impatient faith. It was a short-lived faith. It was not persistent, and therefore it lacked power, and it bore no fruit. This is the tragedy of doubt. And sadly, we fail to accomplish great things for God's glory because of the littleness of our faith. Again, it's, it's, it's great when we have faith when we see plan B in case plan A doesn't work, right? But it's altogether different when plan A is all we have. You see, great faith perseveres when all seems lost. Mustard seed faith, great and powerful faith, remains strong even when our strength is gone, when our bank accounts are empty, when our friends and family have deserted us, when all we have left are the promises of God. You see, friends, great faith says with Noah, I will build the ark even though I've never seen a boat and I've never seen rain. Great faith comes along like Abraham and says, I will offer up my son as a sacrifice if that is what you ask. Great faith is like Caleb that rejected the foolish fears of the majority and said, let's go up immediately and we will conquer the giant Nephilim. Great faith believes that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But ah, friends, little faith is something altogether different. Now let me digress for a moment from the text and give you five marks of insufficient faith to make this very practical for you. And then we'll come back to the text. Let me give you five examples, and this isn't, isn't exhaustive by any means, but hopefully this will make it come alive to you personally. Five marks of insufficient faith. First of all, if you are one who lives in constant fear, you probably have insufficient faith. Like the men of Galilee, you recall, who began to panic in the storm while the master slept, and they came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we perish and Jesus says to them in Matthew 8, why are you, you fearful? Oh, you of little faith. You know, I know people who are afraid to take a stand for Christ, afraid that they might be rejected, afraid that they might offend. I know people who are afraid to speak the truth in love, to confront someone in love. I know people that are afraid to stand up to some spiritual bully for fear that somehow God will abandon me. I know people that are afraid to step out in faith and undertake some great venture. I know Christians who have no self-confidence whatsoever because they have no confidence in God. I know people that are afraid to give sacrificially because they're afraid that they'll run out of money. 
I know people that are afraid to even pray in public because, after all, I'm more concerned about how I look to other people than I am communing with a holy God. People that run around all of their lives on duty, trying to avoid being disliked or, or, or being embarrassed. People pleasers. Which, by the way, seems to be an acceptable form of idolatry in our evangelical circles. Folks who are so totally self-absorbed, so in love with themselves that they're scared to death to take a risk for God. If this is you, my friends, you will never accomplish anything of any magnitude for God as long as you walk around in your self-protective little shell. You'll always be a bench warmer, afraid to get in the game. But the Word of God says in 2 Timothy 1.7, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, which means fear of cowardice, of self-protection. God has not given that to you. If you're here today and you're like that, that has not come from God if you're a Christian. He says God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline, which means a well-prioritized mind. If this is you, my friends, you need to meditate on Psalm 27, 1, where we read, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Let me give you another, another example of insufficient faith. How about those who constantly complain? Those who are forever discontent with the circumstances they have in their life. Let me make it a little more blunt. The whiner. The Eeyore of life. Always murmuring like the children of Israel. No confidence in the sovereignty of God. No understanding that he has ordained your present situation. Ultimately, for your good and his glory. You become very different than the Apostle Paul who said in Philippians 4, beginning in verse 12, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, how about a third example? How about those who remain in perpetual mourning? Let me give you a couple of examples. For example, someone who has had a great tragedy in their life and perhaps they have lost a loved one. And we've all had this happen to us. Or maybe they've lost their personal health or whatever. But whatever it is, they just can't seem to move on. They're just stuck like they're in a swamp. As if they're saying, God, you're just not enough. I, I, I've lost what I really needed to somehow function in this world. And I'm just helpless and and so you refuse to take hold. You refuse to have faith in God to say, God, give me all the strength that I need to go on from here and to live for your glory. Or those who mourn because of the painful mistreatment that they've received by someone. Boy, we could all write books on this one, can't we? You just can't get over it. You know. That feeling where you, you just endlessly rehearse in your mind how you've been abused. Always keeping the wound fresh and oozing. You know the type. 
Somehow the subject comes up and all of a sudden this person goes into graphic detail of how they have been mistreated. And it happened 30 years ago as if it is as fresh as it happened yesterday. Unlike the much abused Apostle Paul, who said in Philippians 3:13, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, if you're a perpetual mourner, you've got little faith. I'm reminded in Pilgrim's Progress, you may recall in one of the scenes, Christian and hopeful encounter a man by the name of Little Faith. Now, as the story goes, Little Faith had been confronted by three big bruisers from Broadway Gate that misled him. And if you study it, you'll see that these were basically false teachers that sold him a bill of goods and he lost a lot of money. Well, by the way, that shouldn't surprise us. That's pretty commonplace, is it not? So anyway, he's been misled. He's been abused here. He's been deceived. His money has been stolen. And here's what the text says in Pilgrim's Progress. Oh, the poor man. This must have caused him great grief. Grief? Yes, grief indeed. This would have been the case for any of us had we been so cruelly robbed and wounded in a strange place. Poor soul. It is a wonder that he didn't die with grief. In fact, I was told, now catch this, folks, that he spent most of his remaining time on the way mourning and complaining bitterly, telling all those he met where the robbery happened, how it occurred, who had done it, what was lost, how he was wounded, and how he had barely escaped with his life. No wonder he was a man of little faith. Rather than saying, God, I don't understand all of this, but what I do understand, I have learned. And now I will move on by your power. You see, perpetual mourners betray an insufficient faith because they constantly live in the past rather than learning from it. And their habitual, unending lament betrays their lack of faith in God's promises, especially where he says that all things work together for good. To them that love him and are called according to his purpose. Let me give you a fourth example. How about those who are constantly overwhelmed with life situations? Those who are constantly living in a state of kind of anxiety and dreading that something bad might happen. I don't know what it is, but I know something bad will probably happen. Like the disciples, when they worried that God would not provide for their physical needs. Remember that in Matthew 6? And Jesus rebuked them because of their little faith and said, Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or with what shall we clothe ourselves? goes on to say, Your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Let me give you some examples of this to bring it home. Typically, by the way, people that are constantly overwhelmed and anxious, they're very controlling people, usually perfectionists. Insisting somehow that the world orbit perfectly around their schedule and their personal preferences. Let me give you a few examples. How about overprotective mothers? They have a child and suddenly they cannot cope. Suddenly, because the child will not cooperate with mommy's schedule and everything that she wants to go properly, mommy is in a constant state of turmoil. She's overwhelmed. 
afraid to leave the child with a babysitter, because after all, nobody can take care of little Johnny like me. And I certainly don't trust God to somehow take care of the child. I, I, thanks, God, but I'll take over for you here. Won't let the child play with other kids because after all, they might get germs or they might hurt, get hurt. Can't have that happen. Or how about folks who panic when unexpected gifts show up and the house isn't as neat as it should be? Oh, my, what are people going to think? People that have everything in their life that's a crisis. And if there's not a crisis, they'll make one. They're constantly overwhelmed. They're like Martha in Luke 10, who the text says was distracted with all her preparations. She had an agenda when the Lord visited her, remember, with her sister Mary. And then Martha gets upset with Mary because Mary's not helping her. She's in there listening to the Lord as if that should be a priority. And so she gets overwhelmed and, and angry. And because of her selfish priorities, uh, because they weren't being honored, she gets upset. And finally, Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only a few things are necessary, really only one. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. By the way, that was the humbling before divine revelation. That is the number one priority, by the way, in the Christian life, humbling ourselves before the word of God. Being overwhelmed, everything's a big deal. And then ultimately you just upset everybody around you. You know the type. Something happens. Maybe someone offends them and they're in a rage. They get laid off from work and they're suicidal. The, the, the child gets hurt and there's mass hysteria. Child brings home a bad grade and they have a nervous breakdown. Folks, that's these are examples of little faith. Like the disciples who were overwhelmed with their lack of resources when it came time to feed the multitudes. Remember in Matthew 16 and verse eight. But Jesus was aware of this, in other words, aware of them being overwhelmed and all anxious. And he said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Now, friends, if this is you, may I lovingly say that you need to get to know the God of the Bible. You need to learn his attributes and live consistently with him, with them and with him. And then to learn, as we read in James one, to consider it all joy. When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect work. It's perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let me let me give you one final example of little faith. How about those who are indifferent to God? God is really a low priority for this Christian. You know, Hebrews eleven six says that without faith, it is impossible Friends, underscore that in your mind. It is impossible without faith. It is impossible to please him. It's not difficult to please him. It is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The point of that text is simply that we're to seek until we find him in saving faith. And then when we do, we should continue to seek him above all others. Do you believe this? Do you believe that he is a re rewarder of those who diligently seek him? 
Do you believe that he will reward you when you follow him? Even if you lose your job, you lose your health, you lose your prestige, you lose your finances, you lose your friendship, maybe your family. You see, those who refuse to be about the Lord's business betray the fact that they do not believe this. That somehow they will be repaid 10,000 fold if they will deny themselves and place their faith in Christ and follow him come what may. As the old hymn says, I'd rather have Jesus than everything that the world has to offer. Ask yourself, do you live to please God? Do you live in light of eternity? Everything else in life should be secondary. But the primary goal is to do everything you possibly can to glorify God, to have faith in him, knowing that as you do that, you are pleasing him because that is the goal of my life. And as I please him, he rewards me. You see, to be well pleasing to him should be the goal of our faith. First, we submit to our king in in saving faith and we become his willing and loving subjects. Then with him as the object of our faith, we love him. And because we love him, whatever he permits to come into our life, even if it is suffering and disappointment, we continue to love him, knowing that, as the scripture says, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him in those who hope in his mercy. Friends, imagine the power we would have if we were truly trusting God. It is said that D.L. Moody, that great evangelist, was greatly moved by the following words that he heard from a friend. And I quote, it remains for the world to see what the Lord can do with a man wholly consecrated to Christ. You see, friends, this is the stuff of great faith, wholehearted, complete consecration. The child of God, our faith needs to be cultivated, lest the weeds of doubt begin to spring up in the furrows of our life. And begin to choke out our confidence in the things that are unseen. We must all examine ourselves to this end. So back to our text. We've seen the scene of despair, the tragedy of doubt, as Jesus explains the reason for their inability to accomplish what God had called them to do. Because of the littleness of their faith. And then thirdly, folks, we see the triumph of faith. Notice again. There in verse 20, he says, for truly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there and it shall move and nothing shall be impossible to you. Now, once again, please remember, mustard feed, mustard seed faith pertains to persistence. It pertains to power, not something minuscule. And herein is the triumph of our faith. Again, the Lord is preparing the disciples now. For doing battle with the enemy after he ascends into heaven. And so he uses this real life illustration of the demonized boy. He uses this to test their faith because this is a seriously wicked scenario. Notice verse 21, it says, but this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. By the way, parenthetically, I need to make a a technical note here. I'm sure in your Bibles you have brackets around this verse. The brackets indicate that this phrase is not found in the best manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew. 
However, but they truly are the words that Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Mark in Mark 9:29. We believe that perhaps a scribe took from Mark's gospel and also added it to the story here in Matthew's gospel. However, the last two words of this particular verse where it says and fasting, it might be helpful for you to know that these words are not found in any of the most reliable manuscripts of any gospel. Therefore, I will not deal with them. So here's what Jesus is saying. Yes, this kind of demon, this level of evil, this magnitude of wickedness does not go out without a fight. And again, friends, this is the picture of the world. In fact, in Mark's gospel in 926, we read that when Jesus rebuked this demon, this evil fiend reacted in one last burst of violence. There in that text, we read, and after crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and he got up again. What a beautiful picture of the saving, transforming power of Christ. Beloved, great spiritual battles require great spiritual warriors. It requires fervent prayer, persistent prayer, committed to mustard seed faith. It requires that relentless and powerful faith that relies solely on an omnipotent and sovereign God, as well as relaxing in our sovereign God's timetable. You see, the problem with the disciples is they, they gave up too quickly. They failed to persevere. They had the power, but they unplugged it too quickly. Plus, their hearts were filled with doubt as they questioned the plan and the purposes of the Savior. As, as they questioned what God was up to with his sacrificial death and his departure. But Jesus says nothing in verse 20. Nothing that is consistent with my will shall be impossible to you. In other words, men, you must learn to never doubt. You must learn to never give up. Like the persistent faith of the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15 that we've that we've learned. Remember that story. She refused to stop pleading to the Lord for to deliver her daughter from demon possession. And even when Jesus deliberately placed obstacle after obstacle in her path, she remained determined. And finally, Jesus answered her saying, oh, woman, your faith is great. Be it done for you as you wish. Friends, persistent faith is like Jesus parable in Luke 11. Remember, the man came to his friend's door in the middle of the night and he started knocking on the door and his friend and his family was asleep and he was saying, go away. But the parable goes on to say that, well, because he was a friend and the text says because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. And I say to you, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find knock and it shall be opened to you. And then you'll recall the Lord goes on and he gives an example of of a, of, of a son that comes to his father. And, and if the son asks the father for a fish, he says, you're not going to you, you wouldn't give him a snake, would you? Use another example. If he came and asked for an egg, you wouldn't give him a scorpion, would you? 
And in verse 13 of Luke 11, he says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Friends, the point of the whole parable is simply this. God is honored by humble yet bold, persistent, relentless prayer that is motivated by a desire to see him glorified. Beloved, I must ask you, does this describe your faith? Does this describe the passion of your heart? Does this describe your prayer life? Or do you give it a few quick prayers and it doesn't happen and you give up and you just kind of move on in frustration? And yet you keep trying to tell yourself, oh, yeah, but I know God is good and sovereign. But down deep, I know that he just really doesn't seem to come through for me. My friends, when our hearts are truly seeking the glory of God in a matter, there should be no reluctance. There should be no passivity in our prayers. We must plead with the Lord that he be glorified in whatever the situation is. Because as James 5.16 says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can what? Accomplish much. Often we will encounter similar spiritual obstacles in our life as this father with his lunatic son. But you know what I've discovered? And we see this borne out all through the scripture. God is often like an athletic coach. You know, an athletic coach can look at his athlete and realize that maybe the athlete needs more muscle, maybe needs more endurance. And so what does the athletic coach do? Well, he increases the resistance training with the weights, makes them run or swim or whatever, more uh, longer distances. Likewise, God desires to strengthen our faith. And he knows that we need more Muscle mass, if you will, more endurance, more perseverance in our faith. So what does he do? He increases the challenges in our life. He adds to the difficulty of our tests and he comes along and he tries our patience and he makes us confront our doubts and our fears. My dear grandmother prayed for my dear cousin all of his life until she died. And my cousin finally came to Christ years after her death. I, like many of you, pray along with my dear wife, pray daily for my children and for my grandchildren. I pray that my children will grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ and that God will bless them. And I pray that he will save those of my grandchildren that don't know him. I've been praying for years. I've been here almost 10 years now at Calvary Bible Church. And I've been praying for years that God will raise up 500 godly families in this church. To win thousands for Christ. And we're seeing him answer that prayer. One family at a time. And you know, I believe that he will answer that prayer if he tarries. I may not be here. I may be long gone. But I believe God for that. By the way, I would encourage you to join with me in that prayer. May I ask you, what are you trusting God for today? If we were able to expose your prayer life to public scrutiny, you know, the big screen idea, and we get out the PowerPoint and all of a sudden we start printing your prayers over the last five years. Would we see a passionate, fervent, persistent, 
focus in some area where you just absolutely keep tugging at God for that blessing? I hope so. If not, I would challenge you to do so. Even in the face of a thousand discouraging obstacles, my friends, don't give up. Have that mustard seed faith, that persistent and powerful faith. Well, my friends, the world around us is indeed a scene of despair, is it not? It is a world of men and women who are much like the lunatic's son, bound up in the power of the enemy, in the bondage of the kingdom of darkness. And what a tragedy to doubt God. For some people to doubt that somehow he would save them if they would but cry out for that mercy. But then for those of us to know him, that know him, to, to, to doubt that he would not give us those things that would glorify him in our lives. Beloved, this is the triumph of faith. That God will indeed answer our prayers and with him when we ask something that is consistent with his will. Nothing is impossible. Which reminds me of the chorus of that great old hymn. Faith is the victory. Faith is the victory. Oh, glorious victory that overcomes the world. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you will forgive us for our little faith. And I pray that you would cause us to understand more fully what it means to live in the power of your glory and your presence, knowing that even though we cannot see you, that you are there. Knowing that the Holy Spirit resides within us and empowers us to do great and mighty things that will bring you glory. Father, give us the stamina, the strength and the courage of bold and persistent faith. And Lord, give those who have never placed their faith in your saving work all of the necessary conviction to run to the foot of the cross and to cry out for that undeserved mercy that you will so immediately grant to them. Lord, we pray this for your glory. For it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cbctn.org or call 615-746-0113.